The Water Values Podcast, Session 155. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. Got a great show for you today. Uh, we have Tony Parrott and Sharice Horn of the Louisville Metropolitan Sewer District. We recorded them uh, face-to-face down in Austin where I was for the uh, One Water Summit recently. Uh, it was terrific being down there. Great programming. Uh, Radhika Fox and her uh, team do a terrific job putting that on. Uh, it was also great to connect with some listeners down there. Kevin Thank you so much for showing me all the great taco places in Austin, and it was great to spend a little time with you. Uh, so moving forward today, we've got, again, we've got Tony Parrott coming up. We also have Reese Tisdale back with a Bluefield on Tap segment, and Reese is going to kind of relate all the things he learned at WefTech. But as normal, before we get to that, uh, just a little bit of housekeeping. We picked up another five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, no review this week uh, on Apple Podcasts, but so that just gives me time to go back and do one of the historical ones that I missed uh, in the past. So we've got one from Canada back in June of 2017. Uh, from Adri Mars via, via Apple Podcasts. And uh, he says, simply the best water podcast available, five stars. Dave is the source for all things water. His interviews provide thought-provoking conversations and detailed insight on our most important research resource. He curates brilliant guests who offer a behind-the-scenes look at the regulations, technologies, and infrastructure systems that keeps the taps flowing. If you want to learn more about the water industry, this is the clear choice. Congrats on your 100th podcast, Dave, and keep them coming. Well, Adrian Mars, thank you so much for that great review and the five-star rating. Really appreciate listeners like you. Uh, and thanks so much uh, for those of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. And that just gets me to the point where if you have been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating or review on whatever uh, podcast directory you're listening on, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. You know, Himalaya, uh, Castbox. There's a million of them now, uh, but go out and 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 uh, leave that rating and review if you would, please. I should also note that the uh, we're, I'm experiencing some problems with the website. It's not letting me into the back end. I, th- I think you can still access the content, but it's just not letting me in the back end. So I can't until that happens. I can't put up uh, kind of the show notes and stuff like that. So. You know, maybe this is permanent. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I don't know exactly know what's going on. I'm I'm working on it. We're trying to get it figured out. Uh, but again, uh, the, the the web presence is just simply not going to be there uh, at this time. So with that, let's get to Reese Tisdale and Bluefield on Tap. So open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Reese, welcome back to another Bluefield on Tap. Glad you're with us. How you been? Hey, Dave. It's <laughs> I've been pretty good. It's fall. Now, so we're, <laughs> We're now in the Q4 and fall has started. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, what, what's been keeping you busy? Uh, things have been good. Uh, we've been obviously in the summer ramps up, but then obviously we're in conference season. So, I, I think you know, the biggest one to date was WefTech last week in Chicago. Big, big turnout, and so our whole team attended uh, attended WefTech. Do you have some takeaways from it? Yeah, I mean, other than uh, I'm overwhelmed every single time <laughs> I, I go to it, it's, it's 20,000 people, and the exhibit hall is massive. I'm at a point where 
you know, you, you really have less time to go to the proceedings and we just go to meetings. But look, I mean, we're getting a lot of questions. In fact, you know, Bluefield, we met with our clients and prospects uh, during our time, two and a half days in Chicago. And the conference, look, it's it's largely a wastewater conference. That's really the focus and less on drinking water. But I think what's interesting that I thought, you know, which I, I expect, so I shouldn't be surprised, but, and we've talked about this, is the growing interest in digital on the wastewater side of the business. And by that, I mean looking, you know, at smarter storm uh, stormwater collection systems or monitoring for, you know, waste nutrients for wastewater systems. Things are getting smarter on that side that have often been, oftentimes been overlooked, uh, but that seems to be changing. Yeah. So can, can you expand on um, kind of what the capabilities are, what's driving this stuff, anything, you know, in terms of, of getting that digital water, uh, the menu of options in digital water um, expanded? Yeah. I mean, look, I think there um, I think there are a lot of vendors that are delivering better, smarter solutions to market. So they're trying to find their niches. And though, you know, as an example, on the, on the drinking water or water side, you know, the, the metering space, you're getting smart meters, but it's very consolidated. It's really competitive. On the wastewater side, there's a bit, uh, it's, it's less unknown and, and greater opportunity. And so what we're, what we're seeing is sort of monitoring and the impact of, you know, smarter SCADA systems, smarter, um, you know, networking between equipment, whether it be pumps and networks, to understand what's happening, try affluence. But I think more broadly, I would say, you know, just resiliency as a whole. The stormwater piece of the equation is really important. And I think you've even had some guests on in the past that look at, uh, at things like that. And understanding, you know, when, it, when you get these larger storm events, enabling a utility or a municipality to better understand what are their water levels? How are they going to manage that so they don't overwhelm the system? And I think on the back end of that, uh, particularly for stormwater, as you start looking at combined stormwater systems, there's still a lot of those out there, over 700 in the U.S., some of which are facing consent decrees. And so they're being pushed to uh, address these concerns. Yeah. Does the, does the increase uh, in digital wastewater uh, does, does, what, what's that say about kind of the reuse market or the kind of the one water market? I think overall, I think we're trending that in that direction. You know, obviously the, the prime example would be a place like Singapore, right? You know, lessons earned. I think, what do they call it? New water. Um, in, in places like California, though, we are moving towards you know, uh, basically capturing the wastewater, reclaiming it for uh, not only agricultural, industrial, or commercial reuse, but also for potable reuse. So we're moving in that direction. And that's going to require ongoing monitoring and understanding what's in that water, not only just for, you know, health and safety reasons, but I think also just for uh, a real-time understanding and giving comfort to the users or the state stakeholders, including customers in the market. So I think that's an ongoing trend that we're moving towards. You know, there's going to need some more uh, regulatory policies in place. Technology companies are there. You know, I know some, I've spoken to several Japanese companies that are looking for these one water solutions and and trying to deliver on them. Yeah. And and about how digital wastewater impacts um, 
you know, kind of monitoring for contaminants in in waste streams, things of that nature. Can you can you tell us a little more about that? I think you know one of the big takeaways, which once again you, we read the news every day, contaminants of concern are are big, and PFAS. Where when I was at ACE in Denver in in June. There was a lot of discussion about drinking water issues and the impact on um, public health and water supplies. Now we look at wastewater, and this may be even more complex because you're seeing PFAS. It doesn't go away. It goes into the wastewater treatment system, and a, a lot of uh, systems, they're capturing uh, the biosolids, and they're recycling them, and they're reusing them for things like fertilizer. And that could really be even more complicated in having to deal with that because if the, if the PFAS, for example, is still in the biosolids and then it's used as a fertilizer, it just continues that cycle. It doesn't go away. And so there are solutions providers out there, you know, trying to deploy new systems and solutions. And it could just be, you know, they say burning, incineration, essentially, to, to remove it. And this is a big concern that's going to be really complex, and it's going to be way beyond just using activated carbon like you can in drinking water uh, to something more, uh, more substantial and uh, more problematic probably and, and costly at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, well, good deal. So it, again, complicated stuff that's, that's coming out, but we're glad that you're, you're keeping us up to date on that. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about a big transaction that was uh, recently approved, the, uh, the Aqua acquisition of Delcora. The Delcora board approved that you know, a week or and a half or so ago. Um, can you tell us a little about what that deal is? Yeah, so Delcora, and which is uh, you know wastewater system um, and services provider in southeastern Pennsylvania, Aqua America just uh, it's been they announced that they were looking at Delcora, I believe in July, I think it was, and they had extended the deadline out to about October first. But just this past week, they agreed to a two hundred seventy-six million dollar deal for the system. Delcor has got some big bills coming due, if I recall. I think you know three to four hundred million dollars to deal with some, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure upgrades. And so, what's interesting to that is one that it's it's a wastewater deal, uh, and that is um, something that I think Aqua has been talking about specifically in its quarterly reporting is targeting that, and I think the others have as well, because I think there are efficiencies to be gained in that. And then secondly. That just the scale of it, and you know, you know, Harrisburg is now also discussing. They face similar bills because you know, and it, this is a common theme. Infrastructure in the U.S. is getting old. Municipalities are, what I would say, I don't know, struggling to to deal with these and um, economically, and, and will if they don't address them soon. And so this was uh, a big move. And, you know, they basically outflanked American Water, quite honestly. American was interested, but it sounds like they were maybe a little too late to the game. There's some dynamics around it, and I think Bluefield probably is going to have some research coming out on it in the next couple of, in the next week or so. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think an important thing to remember in that deal is that Pennsylvania has fair, um, fair market value legislation that allows, yeah. that allows that kind of deal to go through. 
Exactly. And that's a prime example because there have been some of those. And now they're now with that new legislation, which I think of Pennsylvania came about in 2013, 2014. Now we're really starting to see some deals that are driven by that. Yeah. Yeah. Good deal. Well, Reese, it was, it's always great talking to you. Really appreciate uh, you coming on and we'll talk to you soon. All right, Dave. Take it easy. Talk soon. You bet. Bye. Well, it's always great to talk with Reese uh, and, and gain and learn from his insights uh, into stuff like Weftech and the Del Coro deal. Uh, really great, really great for, for Reese to come back on and, and, and chat with us about that stuff. So now it is time to turn our attention to the feature interview with Tony Parrott and Sharice Horn. So here we go. Let's open the valves again, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Tony, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could uh, take a little time out of your day to spend with us. We are at the um, One Water Summit in Austin, Texas. So uh, it's been a great conference so far and, and glad we could connect down here. How you been? I've been doing good. Uh, thank you for uh, having me and uh, thank you for uh, coming to the One Water Summit. Yeah. Uh, terrific. So, uh, Tony, for those who don't know you, can you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure. Uh, you know, I've been uh, in the water and wastewater field for over 30 years. Uh, started out uh, with a medium-sized utility uh, and spent uh, um, working a- as a um, executive director for water and a, a sewer utility. Um, and uh, then I spent uh, 10 years in Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the executive director of the Louisville, I'm sorry, the Cincinnati Metropolitan Sewer District. And then I've been in Louisville for four years uh, as the executive director as the, of the sewer district here in Louisville. Terrific. So um, one of the things we're, we're doing here at the One Water Summit, uh, kind of water equity is, is a big topic around the country. And Louisville has been, <clears throat> excuse me, the Louisville MSD and, and Louisville Water as well have been part of um, – a program to promote water equity. Can you tell us a little about the genesis of that program and and where it's where it, what the goals are? Well, the genesis of it is associated with the uh, U.S. Water Alliance. Uh, there are seven cities that are currently developing what we call a water equity roadmap, mm-hmm. and uh, each community is different. But for our sake in Louisville, basically, we're looking at you know the economic impact that we as a utility have on the community, and then recognizing are we getting the economic inclusion, are we getting the workforce development, and are we getting the collaboration uh, that we need as we embark upon major capital programs that are going to impact our communities over the next 20 to 30 years, and the cost of those programs are on the back of our local ratepayers. So one of the first questions we asked ourselves was, is there inequity as it relates to economic inclusion? And the answer is yes, there was. And so once we made that decision, we decided that we were going to change that ship and do things that were going to influence more inclusion, uh, particularly around workforce and particularly around um, minority-owned and women-owned businesses because of the economic impact that we make on the community in Louisville. Yeah. So, what were some of the factors that made you know, that, that that went into the determination of the existence of uh, inequality? Well, when you looked at the um, the fact that we were rolling out a four billion dollar uh, capital program that was going to require us to raise rates twenty percent to be able to fund it, 
um, one of the some of the feedback we were hearing from our community was uh, particularly because a lot of the large projects are being uh, done in the urban core of our city and we were seeing that we were not getting um, contractors uh, from the minority community or women-owned businesses involved in our construction activity and uh, the unemployment rate in uh, the west end of our city, which is predominantly African-American, is over 35%. So we knew that there were some issues there that uh, we had to look at simultaneously. Our city was rolling out its resilient uh, city, uh, 100 Resilient Cities uh, Sustainability Plan. And one of the things that came out of that discussion with uh, uh, Louisville Mayor Greg Fisher was is that you can't have sustainability without equity, compassion, and trust. And so uh, we were at the table to look at all of the shocks and stresses that were impacting our community from being sustainable. And aging infrastructure was just one of them. Um, inequity was another. Uh, opioid crisis was another. Uh, crime um, uh, and violence in our community was another. So there's a lot of shocks and stresses. So as a utility, you can't talk about transforming a city without being at the table and looking at the impact that infrastructure has on not only the public health and safety, uh, but the environmental uh, impacts of our city as well. Right. And here at the One Water Summit, uh, a terrific document called An Equitable Water Future Louisville was, uh, has been made available. And uh, when I read through it, one of the themes to me seemed to be education or at least getting, you know, the, you mentioned workforce, right? And so getting those, those populations that are uh, subject to inequity, getting them geared up so that they can participate more. Uh, what are some of the strategies to get that, that those populations uh, involved? Well, what I would like to do is have Cherise Horn, who's the director of our Community Benefits Program, uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, terrific. And Cherise is here with us at the One Water Summit, too. Thanks again for the invite. Oh, sure, Cherise. Thanks. So one of these strategies that, um, first of all, we have multiple strategies because you have to tackle it multiple different ways when you're talking about a community Involvement, But one of the strategies we have uh, tried to implement is uh, hosting a pallet high school internship program to get exposure, career exposure, uh, to our youth. Because we realize that the pipeline um, is, is fading, if you will, and really getting the exposure to our career opportunities that we have in the water infrastructure. So beyond the um, high school internship program, uh, we're also making sure that um, we work with workforce development agencies. So we are able to um, really create the pipeline in that aspect as well. So when people come into these workforce development agencies, they know what our criteria is to enter the, to the water mm -hmm. industry. So they're able to train individuals to be able to get into the pipeline. In addition to that, uh, we have uh, linked or we have released recently, a couple of years ago, an MSD job link, which is a web-based portal. Mm -hmm. That web-based portal is designed uh, as part of our local labor hire, and it's designed to uh, connect contractors working on our large infrastructure projects to workforce development agencies to job seekers. So it's, it's a three-pronged approach to make sure that we have um, career opportunities that our contractors are able 
to get the labor force that they need in order to um, build the projects that we have coming down the pipe. Yeah, and one of the things uh, that stood out to me in reading the report was uh, the need for skilled labor. Uh, from I, I get people emailing me all the time about, hey, I'm trying to get into the water industry, but I don't have any, I don't have, I'm not, I'm not, you know, trained up as a, an electrician or a plumber or anything like that. And so the common theme I've seen is that the administrative jobs are difficult to get, but the, so really the, the big opportunities are in the skilled trades. Is, is that consistent with what you're seeing in Louisville? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We are working also with our unions to mm-hmm. make sure that, uh, that they that they're at the table as well. So when you're talking about the apprenticeship programs, looking at the testing requirements for entering uh, those pr- apprenticeship programs, and j- making sure that people in the vulnerable communities are able to uh, test and pass those apprenticeship programs as well. So skilled labor is uh, definitely a challenge for us in Louisville, um, and just making sure we have everyone at the table mm-hmm. who can help um, relieve any any barriers to entry. That we see. Yeah. What are what are some of those other barriers to entry? Uh, you know, fr- from for example, uh, transportation, things things of that nature. Again, you're, you're exactly right. Transportation is definitely a barrier. Uh, when you look at the um, Louisville landscape, and we have um, a lot of our housing projects being torn down all around us, and you're expecting people to come into work. So what you're, you, have, you have to look at the transportation issues that we have in place mm-hmm. and making sure that people have the opportunities to, to make livable wages, that they can get back and forth to work. Looking at child care issues, making sure oh, people yeah. have uh, child care arrangements in place, uh, making sure, again, that people are able to pass the, um, the testing requirements that are, that are set out. So there's, you know, there's layers of barriers but all that can be tackled. I'll just add to that point uh, that that's why we've got so many different uh, agencies involved in our team. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have the Transportation Authority of River City, TARC. Uh, We have uh, Louisville uh, Human Relations Commission. Uh, We have the uh, Urban League of uh, Louisville involved. And all of that is around, you know, how do we work with the Urban League to get some of the construction trade trainings programs to where folks can get certified and then start working with our contractors? How do we work with TARC to make sure that if there's issues of transportation, how do we make that easier for those that want to work? And then how do we work with Human Relations and uh, Kentuckiana Works to make sure that we have a pipeline of folks that are geared toward the skilled trade area and uh, making sure that we're eliminating the barriers to uh, get those in those folks into the workforce. Sure. Well, I, it, from what I've seen, um, you're doing it the right way. You're building partnerships across multiple sectors, not just in the utility sector. You're, you mentioned, you know, the transportation uh, areas and uh, the unions, things of that nature. So. I th- I think that's what we that's where the 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 value adds are going to come when you partner outside of the utility industry. The the other thing I want to add is that we also have a partnership with a uh a veteran community as well. We have a member from the v- VCAL which is uh, a veterans uh, organization that is helping us recruit and get the word out to the veteran community uh, because there's so many veterans that are, you know, out there with the skills mm-hmm. and are interested in entering the water industry. 
and so we want to make sure we eliminate the barriers for those folks as well. Sure. What, what about contracting and procurement? How does that factor into, into gender equity or into uh, uh, water equity? Well, <clears throat> one of the things that we've done in Louisville, I mentioned the fact that uh, historically we had not had the economic inclusion that we would want. Um, so we actually did a disparity study that looked at all of the um, different um, classes of contractors to determine whether or not there was disparate use uh, over the previous five-year period of a certain sector. And what we found that there was some disparate use, and there were recommendations in the disparity study on how we could mitigate that by setting mandatory goals for economic inclusion for uh, African-American-owned companies and for women-owned companies. Uh, and so we actually are starting to put those in place right now. And uh, we also have a local labor uh, utilization policy where a contractor has to commit to using a certain percent of local labor from Jefferson County in Louisville. And some of the results of that have been remarkable. We've had $80 million project uh, where we had 83% local labor utilization. Uh, that's 275 jobs from uh, Jefferson County that were part of that project. We had another project, the $50 million project, where we had 88% local labor utilization. Again, that's about 225 jobs uh, as part of that project. So because of the intentional policies that we're putting in place, it's helping us on the procurement side to require these of our contractors. And then our contractors have to perform. Uh, and that's why we have a staff base that is set up to monitor and enforce the policies that we put in place. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about those policies, like the, the, uh, the community benefit policy, things of that nature? Sure. So the community benefits policy is, is really just making sure we have um, goodwill in our communities that we serve from our capital infrastructure. Uh, it is intended to um, ask our uh, contracting firms uh, to uh, voluntarily commit to working in the community that we all live, work, and play. Um, and that's done by an evaluation criteria when they're bidding. So we're not just looking at low dollar. We're looking at mm -hmm. the total best value uh, for our community. Um, we have just launched that program this, this past July. So we are monitoring our first uh, commitment on that, on that program. So we're excited. The community is excited. Our firms are really excited to be a part of it. Um, so it, it's going to make sure that... Um, that we really hit workforce, as we mentioned in the report, that we focus on education, getting into the school systems as early as elementary mm -hmm. uh, to make mm -hmm. sure we have that water exposure and making sure uh, our youth, even our teachers, are aware of the importance of water and the career opportunities that are available in the water sector. Um, and in, in, in addition to that, it will help focus on small business development or economic development. So making sure... Um, our small contracting firms, our small consulting firms, have an opportunity to to, um, to bid as well and to succeed. So they will be uh, mentored, mentor protege program with some of our larger firms that will help help them with bid estimating. Some some simple things, but that mm -hmm. not I can do the job, but I may not be good at estimating or I may not be good at the paperwork 
right. behind the scenes, right. you know. So making sure those relationships are built as well. So we're excited about the community benefits program. Terrific. Um, the one thing I will add on the community benefits program, I think people are somewhat uh, unsure of what it really means. And basically what it means is basically because of the community benefits policy, our contractors are able to donate uh, their time as volunteers or their money to nonprofit groups as a part of our procurement piece. And so they commit to what their community benefit contribution is going to be during the procurement process, and they are able to get uh, points for uh, that will help them in the award process. Mm-hmm. So it's not costing the utility anything. The, these are funds and, and, and hours that are coming from our contractors directly to the communities. And uh, we project, in Louisville anyway, that it could mean anywhere from 2 to $3 million a year of direct contribution to the community from our contractors. And so what we do as a part of our policy is just to make sure that once they have made that commitment, we monitor it to make sure that they follow through. What about shared services? Um, I know that shared services, uh, we mentioned Louisville Water. How are you uh, getting economic benefit out of using those shared services? Yeah, we have been... uh, uh, working on an initiative in Louisville called our One Water uh, Partnership. And essentially what we've done, what we've been able to do uh, by working with the Louisville Water Company is, uh, for example, in our procurement area, we actually have uh, one chief or vice president that is over procurement and supplier diversity for both agencies. And so you're trying to build common ground on how uh, we can work together as uh, utilities in Louisville to make sure that we're implementing policies. Um, and so that's one benefit that we've seen so far is that we've been able to uh, have a like a one-water buyer uh, or a one-water uh, purchasing platform that is beneficial not only to the utilities but beneficial to the customers as well. In other shared services, we're, uh, we have a – in our IT area, we have a, a, a one person who is managing IT for both utilities. Uh, we have um, uh, one person who is over the communication and outreach for both utilities. Uh, we have uh, one person that is uh, uh, involved with uh, uh, fleet – management for our utilities. And so those type of shared services are reducing the overall cost to our customer. And they are also uh, helping us build those partnerships uh, collectively in Louisville. And really, it's all about partnership. It's all about efficiency. It's all about cost savings uh, that you wouldn't normally have if you didn't have the partnership. And also with Louisville Water, we're partnering to see how we can look at regionalization of utility services uh, in Kentucky. And then we're also looking at how we can implement what we call an innovation platform. And uh, we also have a chief innovation officer that we just hired this year that is serving both the Louisville Water Company and MSD in Louisville. Terrific. Uh, So when I think of... um Water equality, one of the big issues to me is affordability. Can you talk about the steps that Louisville, that, uh, Louisville MSD is taking in uh, regards to affordability? For some years now, we've, we've had uh, a what we call a senior discount program uh, to help 
uh, senior citizens that um, are at or below the or uh, at or above the, the below the poverty level, uh, they can qualify for a credit on their monthly sewer bill up to 30 percent reduction. And um, we are also designing a, a program that would be more comprehensive for all customers, similar to a program called LIHEAP on the gas and electric side. Uh, we want to be able to implement that for all of our uh, customers. Again, if they meet the pe- uh, federal poverty guidelines, uh, they would be eligible for a 30% reduction. And then also we contribute uh, through the Louisville Water Foundation uh, over $200,000 uh, to a local community ministries group uh, for customers to tap. If they're having trouble paying their bill, they can go in for and request assistance through uh, the community ministries program uh, for assistance on their bill. Terrific. Uh, what about uh, has have things such as um, lifeline rates or any any of that kind of using the rate design to help those those vulnerable populations? Has that has that been discussed at all? We have. Uh, uh, again, we've we've looked at that, and uh, the first step that we wanted to do was to try to have something that would be similar to LIHEAP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think if uh, we're successful with that, I think we will go with something like that mm-hmm. um, because I think it's all about making sure that the cost of service is, is equally distributed across the base. And then if someone qualifies for assistance, then they can apply for it. So that's our first strategy. Terrific. Uh, now, we, we are uh, quickly running out of time here. What, what are the important things in your mind that I've not – that I've kind of overlooked in this, uh, this interview. What, is there anything that you, you think needs to get across? Well, you know, I think that folks need to understand that the economic impact that utilities have on our cities uh, and thus on our country are things that we don't hear about. And so this whole water equity uh, discussion is really about how do we get the word out? How do we raise awareness? How do we make folks understand that if you support uh, your utilities. Uh, we are devising programs that will provide some sort of benefit or payback to the community. And uh, uh, the seven cities that are involved with this water equity roadmap, uh, Milwaukee, uh, Buffalo, Camden, Atlanta, Louisville, um, I mean, these are cities that, you know, have already launched their map. I think there's one city left to, to launch their map. Um, but we want to go from 7 to 75. Mm-hmm. And so the more we can spread this word, raise awareness, and get this type of uh, thing to be more intentional and systematic for all utilities, the ultimate impact is going to be you're going to be able to create jobs. You're going to be able to build um, economic inclusion for small businesses, minority-owned businesses, and women-owned businesses. And you're going to be able to create a sustainable program that is going to be an economic boon uh, to the local economies in your cities. And so that's what the Water Equity Roadmap exercise is all about. And the U.S. Water Alliance, along with uh, other groups called NACWA and uh, the Water Environment Federation, uh, AWWA, all utilities are now starting to uh, circle around this, and we think that – if we can continue the dialogue like we're doing today, uh, spread the word, and uh, 
I think we're going to be very successful. We're going to look back five years from now and say, look what uh, every city is doing. Yeah, that's yeah, such a great answer. Uh, I, you know, we're at the One Water Summit. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about, you know, what what One Water means to you. So, well, I mean, you know, water is water, <laughs> and uh, uh, and you know, no matter how you look at it, whether it's stormwater, drinking water, or wastewater, water is water. And what I like about the One Water Summit is is that it gives folks an opportunity to come, sit around the table, and to really appreciate the value of water. And uh, uh, for so many years, we've been uh, bifurcating water from wastewater, and really it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we're impacted by EPA regulations that affect uh, all different sectors. But water, whether it be stormwater, wastewater, or drinking water, we all as local utilities have to comply. And so one water is giving us the opportunity to build coalitions and to build strategies on how we can not only influence how we deliver service, but how we deal with uh, the regulators in Washington, D.C., and how do we influence uh, funding for infrastructure across the country, which when you talk about infrastructure funding, uh, you often hear about roads and bridges. Well, mm-hmm. I'm here to tell you that water and wastewater uh, utilities are in dire need of investment in our infrastructure and the One Water Summit and other uh, alliances that we've built here will allow us to build that platform and to continue to lobby in D.C. for uh, water and wastewater infrastructure investment. Terrific. Well, Tony, thank you again. Really appreciate it. I learned something whenever, whenever I conduct these interviews, and today's been no different. You've been fantastic. So uh, for those who want to find out more about you, find out more about Louisville MSD, where can they go to get that information? Uh, you can go to our website at louisvillemsd.org and uh, find out everything that we're doing with the Water Equity Roadmap, what we're doing with our critical repair and reinvestment plan locally in Louisville, and uh, uh, also pose any questions uh, on our website. Terrific. Well, again, Tony, thanks so much. Sharice, thank you so much as well. I really appreciate both of you uh, making yourselves available today. Thanks. Thank you. You bet. Well, Tony and Sharice did just a terrific job. I really appreciated them spending a little time with me down in Austin to record this. Um, Again, just really an important issue. This This issue of water equity is... Uh, very important, and it's just great to to learn how some of the utilities out there are attacking the issue. So, Tony and Sharice, thank you so much for spending a little time and for sharing some of your insights and knowledge about uh, uh, how Louisville is going about attacking this water equity issue. Well, as I indicated at the top of the show, we don't have the website working yet. Um, so normally I'd say you can check the show notes out for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 155. I don't know that it's going to be up there though. But so, if you're really interested, you can you can try tapping that into your uh, your browser bar and see if it gets there. So again, we're we're trying to work on that. We're trying to figure it out. In the meantime, you can tweet about the podcast using Twitter and my hashtag my my handle, which is at DTM one nine nine three. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag Water Values. You can also uh, email me at David at the Water and uh, you, I think you can still go to the website and sign up for the newsletter, at least. That's at thewatervalues.com. You just go up there and, and click on it and enter your information, and we'll get you all signed up, and you'll get the newsletter. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. 
listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.